Hey, y'all. You're listening to How I Got Here with Drina Whitfield, the podcast that dives deep into the unique journeys of some of the dopest entrepreneurs, business leaders, and personalities I know. I'm your host, Drina Whitfield. I created this podcast to have real, honest conversations about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Grab your notebook, sit back, relax, and catch these gems. Dr. Chris Purnell is a dynamic physician leader, health and wellness visionary, and social change agent. She is a charismatic and leading voice in preventive medicine and public health. She's a graduate cum laude from Princeton University. She also attended the Duke University School of Medicine. She is a fellow of the American College of Preventive Medicine and holds an appointment as a clinical assistant professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. Currently, she's working as a senior executive in a hospital in Newark, New Jersey, and NJ Biz named her a public health hero in 2020. Dr. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. So good to be here with you. So we have so much to talk about as it relates to your journey, your current mission of educating Black and Brown communities about the COVID-19 vaccinations. But I want to start from the beginning, and I always like to ask this question of my guests. So Dr. Chris, what did you write in your high school yearbook when it said, I will be XYZ in 10 years? What did, what did you write? Okay, you're going to love this. So since the sixth grade, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And oh, my God. I can remember almost to the day coming home, telling my mother, we had a guest speaker and she spoke about all of these different healthcare roles. And I know what type of doctor I want to be. I want to be a brain surgeon and it's called a neurosurgeon. So I spent the rest of my grammar school days because I left grammar school in sixth grade, middle school, high school, preparing myself as much as my young mind could fathom to be a brain surgeon. So I wrote about that in my high school yearbook. Um, I went to Glen Ridge. I was a tuition student. So before we had um, the discussion around the charter school movement and public schools and what should quality public education look like, I was something called a tuition student. So my parents paid for me to go to a public school out of my district. And you can imagine it was a town that lacked diversity. Um, I was one of very few black and brown students. It was a very small high school, but one of very few black and brown students, definitely children of the middle class and upper middle class, children of wealth, children of privilege. And I remember writing in my yearbook about some of those experiences. So juxtaposing, telling everyone, look, I'm going to become a neurosurgeon someday. I also wanted them to know what what it was like for a young black girl from East Orange being educated in their school. Um, I remember when a student at my locker said to me, so you're from East Orange. Are there drug dealers and rundown apartment buildings on your block? Literally, wow. he said hello to me. And I wrote about that in my yearbook. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. Um, and I wrote about how that experience uh, shaped my sense of voice and advocacy and taught me how to stand up for myself because I had to do that when I was a very young teenager. And so that's what that's what uh, Chris T. Purnell wrote about in her yearbook. So for people who don't know about East Orange or just about Jersey in general, when you say East Orange and when you say Glen Ridge, just talk about how close they are and just like, what's the difference in terms of demographic? Wow. They are mere miles away. And when I say mere miles away, I'm describing yep. from my home 
on 294 South Clinton Street in East Orange to Ridgewood Avenue, where that school was located. But actually, at the end of the street that the high school sat on, if you would drive back down the street, East Orange was right there. East Orange was abutting Glen Ridge in in many ways. Um, Orange, East Orange, Bloomfield, Montclair. Um, So Glen Ridge is very much nestled in a very densely populated county, right? Essex County is very densely populated, but we see such uh, racial and ethnic stratification by zip codes. So East Orange was predominantly Black, you know, growing in diversity in the Black diaspora, increasing families of you know, West Indian or um, Caribbean ancestry, increasing um, African families, increasing um, Latino or Latinx families. But it was still very much, so we're talking about 1989 through 1993 that I was in high school. I came from a working class slash middle class family. Um, I could tell you, I noticed how East Orange was changing. Um, My siblings were all educated in the East Orange public school system, but they're older than me. The closest sibling is older than me by almost 10 years. So like East Orange and other uh, Black cities uh, that were residential and a mix of urban, it started to see a decline, right? It started to see um, economic disinvestment in certain of its neighborhoods. So that was the difference. Glen Ridge was very well manicured. You could ride (laughs) Ridgewood Avenue going to high school and you saw very palatial homes, even mansions, if you would. And so it was like driving into a different world and universe. But I knew within that those students, though they looked different from me and that they had different households and socioeconomic statuses, I knew that there were similarities. Look, my dad was a research scientist, so I had been exposed to professionals. Um, I had a black pediatrician. I had a black dentist. So I definitely saw black excellence, but I knew that was a different world. Mm. And when you wrote that in your yearbook, what was like from your peers, from the administration at the school? What did what was their reaction? I think mm-hmm. they probably said, "There goes Chris." <laughs> Okay. Okay. Because I really, really learned to use my voice there. I started a Black Awareness Club there. Um, I <laughs> a display in our school library about Malcolm X. <laughs> I spoke. About, I love it. Yes, I spoke about Malcolm X and you know the Black Power, the Black Struggle Movement. We had done in our AP History class. Myself and another student did a presentation about the Black Panther Party. Um, I, I started a pep squad with some other students at Glen Ridge. Yes. At Glen Ridge. <laughs> and so when I say to people, they were like, how how did you like Princeton? Or how is it being one of few Black persons in this career or this role? I've been prepared for this since high school. And I was finding my voice in high school. And so I've had a lot of experience at standing up to powers, standing up to systems. I fought for a more inclusive curriculum. I fought for us to read um, books by Black authors. And so, yeah, they probably said, there goes Chris. <laughs> so Dr. Chris has been a little firecracker since she was in high school, huh? <laughs> yeah. People can't handle it now. <laughs> so you graduate high school and you get accepted to go to Princeton. Yes. What did that feel like? You know, that was a wow moment. So 
Michelle Obama writes about this in, in her book, Becoming. When I was considering where I would go to college, mind you, I said I wanted to be a brain surgeon since the sixth grade. So I had diagrammed. I had books and notebooks, and I had diagrammed the top 20 colleges in the United States, right? Did this of my own will and volition. My parents weren't emphasizing that I needed to do this. This was really self-directed. So I had an idea of the type of university that I wanted to go go to somewhere where I was going to be academically enriched, challenged and nourished, but it had to be um, very competitive. So I had had these categories of schools that I would apply to. And I applied to Princeton and I had grouped it in the categories of Ivy's among other schools. But I knew applying to school was a very expensive endeavor. So I really only applied to a handful of schools. I remember my guidance counselor, who actually was someone who was more supportive of me at my high school saying, you know, these schools are going to be a bit of a stretch. I was I was ranked at or near the top of my class. And I was just like, yeah, but I'm still applying. <laughs> right. And that's and I, black excellence. And you're yes. going to get all the scholarships. Okay. Yes, and I just looked and I'm like, I'm still applying. And it was my brother. It was my brother, brother Bishop, who was watching a TV, a TV commercial and had seen um, a commercial saying, hey, if you write to Cablevision, you know, you could win a scholarship and we'll help pay your way to college. And I remember him saying to me, my family nickname is Boo. And he was Mm -hmm. like, oh, you have to do that. You know, you have to write. For that, and I won. I won the Cablevision scholarship. Oh wow! How much was it for? I want to say Cablevision was for somewhere in the order of maybe five or so a year, or something. Oh wow! And so it helped to pay my way to Princeton, and Princeton gave me the most competitive package, almost of any school that I had applied to. Meaning I wouldn't come out owing a lot in debt, and I really thought I was going to go to UPenn. Because I explained it, I could go, I could go to a very competitive program, I'm going to be prepared to be a neurosurgeon, they have a great medical school, but I'll also be around black people because I'll be in Philadelphia, the pen relays are there. <laughs> that's pen relays used to be hot. They yeah, used to be the, the spot to go to. And that's literally how I rationalized it to myself because, you know, I was in which was not a diverse environment, but then I visited Princeton and touring the campus it just spoke to something in my spirit. And I said, I'm coming here. And this is after I had been accepted. I said, this is where I'm coming. I'm coming to Princeton University. And I never looked back. Wow. What was that first day like? Like when you're, when you like, you know, when you go in your room after your parents and family have moved you in and it's like, yo, I'm officially a a Princeton, you know, student. What did that feel like? It felt like, a aha moment, like, wow, this is what the other side is like. And when I say the other side, I have been preparing for that day to get into college. Um, education was stressed in my family, especially since neither of my parents um, were college educated. Um, my father was self-taught, a research scientist who read textbooks, took classes. Wow, at- a yeah. self-taught? Yes, yes. Um, and was able to ascend the research throne and to get a position that's typically reserved for advanced degree and even PhD 
sciences. And my mom had taken a couple of school, uh, college courses while she was a director um, at a daycare. But it was just emphasizing my household among my siblings how important it was to be educated, especially for my father, who was just brilliant, but didn't have the access in 1959, Richmond, Virginia, to go to college. And so it felt like a life come full circle moment at Princeton because it was not just my victory. It was my family's victory. It was my father's Aww, victory, yeah. was my community's victory. And it was like, I'm going to do this. Right? And I was like, I've been through Glen Ridge. People have no idea. I'm so prepared. Right. Whether <laughs> it was someone in my gym class saying, hey, we were talking about you at dinner last night and you could very well be the smartest person in the school and you're from East Orange. How do you feel about that? So literally, wow. I, was, I felt so emotionally, intellectually and socially and spiritually prepared. I really, really grew up in a household. My father, I just told you, was self-taught. So no was not in yeah. our vocabulary, right? No was not. And my dad was like, black power, black excellence. So, you know, no one's better than you. <laughs> Come on, dad. Yes. <laughs> That's the opportunity. You do and show them what you can do. So I was just like, hey, I'm here. And, you know, I was very much involved in the arts. So I found my home artistically, black arts dance company, and I already knew how to advocate for myself. So I was advocating with my roommate, like, no, we have to share these things. And, you know, I'm going to write things on our board outside our door around Black Solidarity Day because she had erased it once. And I said, no, you will never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, Princeton, of course, it was a challenge. It was a, a challenge academically and it was yeah. a challenge culturally because as as are all sectors and institutions, there was institutional and systemic racism that I did encounter there. But I am very grateful and thankful for that experience. And I would do it all over again. And so once graduating Princeton, you went on to Duke. And this was off. I took two years off before going. Oh, oh, what did you do during your little, what did you you do during your break? In those two years, Drina, I grew leaps and bounds. I set out purposefully um, Mm -hmm. because I, felt like I said, I need to go to Johns Hopkins. And I didn't get into Johns Hopkins. I got into all these other great medical schools, but I refused to go. And it sounds crazy when I say that now in 2020. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> yes, down multiple acceptances at medical school because it wasn't Johns Hopkins. Wow. And I was like, I need to go to Johns Hopkins. That's where Dr. Benjamin Carson is. <laughs> He's the best <laughs> neurosurgeon in the world. I have to be trained by him. But that was just my very precocious, naive way of saying I, I I need to be in the most excellent environment. But I'm thankful that I did that, not knowing full well the consequences of that, because during those two years, that's when I really got involved in ministry. Um, my brother's a bishop. My family is steeped in faith. Both of my grandparents were ordained. My father's father was an apostolic bishop, you know, Bishop John W. Purnell. He started hundreds of churches in the South, very, very rooted um, in theological studies, could speak Koine Greek, biblical Hebrew, understood the Latin. My mother's father was a um, was a Baptist minister in a rural town, very well known. His children were traveling singers. <laughs> <laughs> and 
greatest radio stations in the South. And so faith has always been a, a constant theme in my household. So that in, that in those two years, I really invested time into ministry. Um, I got ordained at Beth Hashim Yahweh. I did things in community. You could find me on Broad and Market. You could find me at Apostle's House. Um, you could find me across Essex County, just giving up myself while I was working like as a research assistant once at Kessler. Um, I was a research assistant also for um, a biotech company. And so during those two years, I amassed skills that really did distinguish me in medical school. I remember attendings, and those are the senior physicians who evaluate you and train and educate you in medical school. I remember people asking me from the very beginning, what else did you do? Because there's something different about you. You're able to have difficult conversations with patients. You're able to understand patients and empathize with them. And now those are tools that I had learned in ministry. So mm-hmm. I learned how to, how to connect with people. So yeah, so that was my two year, what at times felt like a waylay. I was in my mind applying, applying to get into Johns Hopkins. I didn't get into Johns Hopkins, even when I applied again, but I got into Duke when it was a third rank school. And I said, okay, that's good. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's literally how I was. And literally, you know, people, they were looking at me like, you know, this is not normal for someone to, (laughs) like, I got a scholarship to go to University of Michigan, UVA. (laughs) You turned all of them down. I turned all of them down. Um, And so I do not recommend that. (laughs) But that was a part of my story. And that was the only way that I would have taken those two years to learn who I was becoming as a woman. And those years were instrumental in the woman that I am today. Those two years, I didn't know it then, but those two years would lead me out of neurosurgery would ultimately lead me out because they taught me skills that I could not afford to leave on the table. And I had to find a way to integrate into medicine and and a medical practice. So during those two years, that's when you decided, I no longer want to be a neurosurgeon. No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet? I went went through medical school. I met um, Dr. Benjamin Carson in person. I had written him letters. um, And I met him in person. And I remember the first day, like, I went, like, speeding through Duke Medical Center. Like, I was like, I got to get there. I got to get there. He has to see me. And I was I was thinking it was going to be like this kismet moment. He was going to see me and like, yes, it, she's going to be the next greatest neurosurgeon. Because you got to understand, since the sixth grade, I wanted yeah. to be a neurosurgeon. My mom bought me the book, I Dream a World, when I was in medical school. And it had Black women first. And it had Dr. Alexa Kennedy. I remember the pose with her fingers. Mm-hmm. And I studied the craft. I went to Princeton. I met with my advisor before I took my first class and I had planned out all four years. And she was like, Chris, you probably want to give yourself a little flexibility. Wait, wait, before you had your first class at Princeton. Yes. You met with your, before you met with your advisor, you had planned out your four Uh, years. I looked through the syllabus and I (laughs) I thought I needed to take across the four years. Wow. Yeah. I was, I was on a mission. But honestly, Chris, that's like a whole different level of like excellence, right? Because, you know, I mean, granted, you went to Princeton, but sometimes when kids go to college, you know, they don't really know what they want to do until maybe like 
their junior year, you know, and the fact that you had like laid out a path so clearly as to what you wanted to study and achieve during your time there, you know, it's just a, it's just a testament that you already like destined to do great things, even if it weren't to be Mm -hmm. like become a neurosurgeon, which was your ultimate goal. Yeah. And and that's what I, that's what I learned through life. So Mm -hmm. I meet Jim Carson and I don't know any other way to say that he insulted me. Uh, <gasps> and, no. Yes, in a, in a first of all, you know, when I first met him, he kind of was like, okay, I was like, okay, maybe I'm coming on too strong because it wasn't immediately like, great, yes. That <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a response I expected. So we had this, like, <laughs> we had this like small group discussion, and he said to me, in a room full of my peers, in a room full of academic stalwarts at Duke. Who's going to want to marry you if you become a neurosurgeon? What type of he man? said that he said that he was like you'll have to consider what type of man would want to marry you. And he oh. went several minutes. He said, you know, perhaps you'll have to marry an engineer because an engineer would be more practical. He would understand having a wife that's a neurosurgeon. I was floored. I was floored. Wow. And then I had another peer in the class who was talking about perhaps like a career in pediatric cardiothoracic surgery. And he said, what's with all of these women wanting to become surgeons? And so I was like, what? this Ben Carson? And, you know, afterwards, I went up to him in my ever so crisp way. I put my hand out because he and he's also a man of faith. And he always talks about his faith. And I put my hand, my hand out for him to shake it. And I like pulled him in. And I said, I want you to know I'm a woman of faith and nothing's going to stop me from achieving my goal. Come Just on. stopped you. And he said, oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to discourage. He felt convicted. Mm. And people were like, you like rolled up on Ben Carson. I was like, yes, because that's who I was. <laughs> exactly. I was a little girl in the backyard, like, you know, you know, reimagining child and gender roles. Like I was pretending to be Luke Skywalker in the backyard or Han Solo. And people were like, you can't do that. You're the girl. I was like, yes, I can. It's my backyard. Either you go along with it or you leave the backyard. Right. And, you know, yeah. I was Michael Jackson when we reenacted Thriller. And they're like, you can't be Michael Jackson. You have to be like the woman <laughs> you know, interested in his video. And I was like, no. You're like, no, no exactly. Michael Jackson. So, you know, I had been that type of kid. And so even then, after that encounter with Ben Carson, even how difficult it was to get mentorship at Duke, and you know, Drina, I didn't match originally in neurosurgery. So when you leave medical school, you interview at residencies, right? That's where you do your training and they rank you and you rank them. And I think I got about three, what was it, about three or four interviews and I did not rank Duke high because I said, I can't stay here. It felt stifling. And this is from a mm. woman who had gone to high school at Glen Ridge, a woman who yeah. had gone to Princeton. I was like, it feels stifling. I didn't see um, myself reflected in the neurosurgery department. And I said, I can't be trained here because for neurosurgery, you, not only is it a technical um, skill that has to be cultivated, but you need that mentorship, someone advocating for you. And, you know, I had the intellectual acumen to do it, but I just didn't feel supported. So I didn't rank Duke high and Duke ranked me and I didn't. So I didn't match in neurosurgery, but I matched in general surgery. And it was I was heartbroken. Imagine preparing for something for decades and not getting it. And I just felt shame. I felt, how Mm. did this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? And I remember I spoke to Duke and 
I spoke to people at Harvard because I had done what we call a sub-I at Harvard. And Harvard didn't didn't rank me high. And I knew why. I didn't I did well in medical school, but my first board, it was like a standardized test. I didn't score very well. And I remember when I was at my sub-I at Harvard MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital. You know, people were talking like, Chris is going to match here. Chris is going to match here. And I was like, yeah, this would be good if, you know, if I don't go to Hopkins, I can come here. And so they had me meet the chair and the chair was basically saying, everybody is telling me you have what it takes. They were like, you're, you're, you know, you're smart. You're, you're tenacious. You're, you're in the OR. You're, you're practicing your knots and all of those things. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And he says, what did you score on your step one boards? And I remember telling him and literally it's like his face changed. He like closed his, I think he had been taking notes or something. He's closed his book and was like, okay, well, thank you for talking to me today. We'll definitely give you an interview, but you won't match here. And look, but I had a testing irregularity, like my test shut down during the middle of me taking it. And I like flipped out and I was on the computer like, what's going on? What's like it literally blacked out. And yes. But that's because what like how important is it for you to match, though? For You can't become the type of uh, physician you want to be. It's not possible. Mm. It's only one route. You have to match. And so it was like. All doors were closed to me. And Duke was like, do you want us to um, put in a word? Like Duke was like, let's call, um, let's call your, uh, the person who had advised the program that I was a part of at, at Harvard and, and let's come up with a strategy. We're going to get you into a neurosurgery program. Because the thought of like Chris Purnell not matching, it kind of stood out. It stood out at Duke. It stood out to the neurosurgery department. They're like, why you, but you didn't rank us. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be trained here. <laughs> so, and it was even like, so don't try to find me a spot here. I don't want to stay here. Right. So there, there, I do believe if possible, Duke would have taken me. Right. But I didn't want to stay there because I felt like I would not be able to survive there. And as a black woman, it is important in a medical career, um, especially a surgical career in 19. So I left, I am not, I left medical school in 2003. So in 2003, I remember a surgical resident, chief resident saying, Chris, wherever you go, you have to be trained in a program that respects you, you as a person. Otherwise, you won't be successful in your program. And I knew what he was telling me, right? Mm-hmm. Dr. Aloy, mm-hmm. I'll never forget him. And so that stuck with me. And I, and I really did not feel that Duke would nourish me. And so I spoke to Hopkins and Hopkins had me come down. And I thought, oh my goodness, is it going to be possible? Like, is Hopkins going to create a space <laughs> for me? Because all of these people were talking to people behind. And, and another Duke medical student had matched there. And they were like, we took your, we took your peer, you know, oh, you know, we know your story. Oh my goodness. And they were like, this is what you can do. We'll give you a position, but it won't be a residency position. Come work for us. Kind of like a pre-residency fellowship. You can work in the labs, you can work in the OR and kind of like, we'll train you and then you'll apply again. And I asked them, you know, I asked my, my cadre advisor, should I do it? And they were like, they're not offering you a position flat out. They were like, no, go to UCLA, go to UCLA, do the general intern and general surgery intern year and reapply to neurosurgery. So that's what I did. I head out, I head out west. I had no family out there. Yeah. UCLA was a very competitive surgery program. And I was like, I'll do a year of general surgery because you have to do a, a general surgery intern year, right? Before you go into neurosurgery. And most people match for both. And I only matched for one. Mm. So I said, I'll go out there. I'll reapply. It won't be a problem. 
but I went out there and two life-changing things happened to me. The first life-changing thing that happened to me is I was standing on a wall in a neural path conference and I had an epiphany and it's like I heard a flash of the spirit and it said, I don't want to be a neurosurgeon. And I literally, the type of thing where you look over your shoulder and it's like, did anyone else hear that? It was like a movie. I don't know how else to <laughs> I was leaning on the wall. Life was so busy. I was working sometimes a hundred hours a week, Drina. I lived across the street from the hospital. All I did was get up. Oh my God. Like in Westwood, like beautiful Westwood, the W down the street, stars everywhere you could think. I remember being in the, the mall and seeing Pharrell and he's like, beautiful. <laughs> it was like that whole LA vibe that life and people are like, oh, you, LA. you know, are you in the industry? And I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm an intern. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I had that epiphany and I still wasn't ready to say, okay, you know, let me totally back out of a, t- a, a certain type of doctor. But I knew I didn't want to be a neurosurgeon. And I called my brother and I said, you will never believe this. I don't feel led to become a neurosurgeon. And he was like, what? That's the Holy Spirit. Nobody. He was like, nobody <laughs> could ever convince you not to do that. I said, I said, a peace came over. I was giddy. I was like, oh my goodness, I got to tell, I have to tell people this. So I was trying to figure out what else I would do. So I was trying to see if UCLA would take me into their radi- radiology program. And so I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a radiologist. And then I got sick, Trina. Um, I had had a health condition since I was a child, undiagnosed. And when I was in Los Angeles, I don't know if it was a smog or something in the environment, it spiraled out of control. Oh, wow. I couldn't breathe. My heart, I was having tachycardia, very fast heart heart rate. I was fatiguing. My heart was tiring. And literally within, and this is how it's a book, probably within a month of making that decision that I didn't want to be a neurosurgeon. I was the sickest I've ever been. And I was fighting for my life and my livelihood. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed in LA for the remaining of the year. UCLA was really, really good to me. And this, and you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very um, tenacious. And I kept saying to them, look, I'm going to get better. And they're like, Chris, we don't see how this is possible. You're going to have to withdraw from this year. And again, I was like, no, I will not fail. I was like, if I withdraw, how will I get back in? I just don't want to do neurosurgery. I'm not saying I don't want to be a doctor. And so it was frightening, but my faith and my family were my bedrocks. And I was like, I, I, I don't I don't know what else to do, but just to stand on those two things. And I remember being really sick and I kept trying to go to the hospital. I was passing out. Like I was so wait, you were really sick and still trying to go and and work. Trying to go into the hospital and try to work. I would I would just like stay out a couple of weeks, and the cardiologist would be like, "Chris, I don't think this is going to be possible." Because at first, we it took us about, about probably a month or so to get a diagnosis, and I faced what what a lot of black patients face. I faced doctors not listening to me. I faced doctors telling me my symptoms weren't real. I had doctors insinuate, "Oh, you know, she's having a, a mental health crisis." And I'm like, I just came back from vacation. Like literally the way they made you take vacation as an intern, you had to take a month worth of vacation. And I got the short end of the totem pole. My vacation was like in October. So I had only worked like you start July 1st. So I worked all of July, August. I think I worked all of September, like September, somewhere in there. And I had to take a month off. So I had been home just relaxing, living the life. And I came back to LA. I remember landing. I remember the smog being really bad. And I remember saying, I can't breathe. Like I couldn't walk upstairs, um, rounding. I couldn't walk from patient room to the next. And it just got worse and worse until one morning 
I dragged myself across the street. I was like, something is wrong. I was having very, very, very strong heart palpitations. Um, I had had a, a, almost like a premonition the night before, which I know was the Holy Spirit saying, I'm about to get really, really sick. And my family's going to have to come out here and I'm going to be hospitalized by that next day. I'm running down a flight of stairs trying to catch up with my team and I pass out. Cold. No. Yes. And so that started a host of studies and echoes and, um, you know, electrophysiology studies. And finally, we got a diagnosis through me fighting like there is something going on. I've been having these symptoms since I was a kid. I used to have blackout spells as a kid. And the blackout spells would always happen with changes in position. And then I'd have symptoms of it in high school and it would go away. And I'm like, oh, she's anemic. I had symptoms of it in um, college and it would get better. I had symptoms of it in medical school, saw a cardiologist and was like, um, just do this and do that. And it probably should calm itself down. But we now know so much more about postural orthostatic tachycardia, which I have. And so again, I had to advocate for my well-being. UCLA was like, Chris, you're sick. You need to just wow. go out and get better. And I was like, nope. And I would stay out for two weeks. I would come back in. I would pass out. I would stay out for two weeks. I would come back in and I would have crushing chest pain. I would stay out for two weeks and I would come back. And finally, I remember my breath was like, you have to stop this or you're going to lose your life. You're yeah. Lose your life. You have to stop this. And so I, I took another month and UCLA was like, still paying me, Drina. And I was like, I'm going to make up the time. I'm telling you, I'm going to be able to make up the time. And they're like, how? Because we're not going to pay you past this year. How are you going to make up the time? And so I came home again. I went back. My mother flew out. My mother had never flown anywhere. And I was her baby. My mother put everything into me. She invested everything into me. And so, you know, she came out. She never flew and she flew across the country. That Mm -hmm. LA flight is brutal. It's brutal. So the the first time she flew was when I was looking for an apartment. And so she came to North Carolina. We flew to Houston. From Houston, we flew to LA. Um, And then when I got sick, she flew back out with my sister. She stayed with me for a month. And then when I went back home for a month, I flew back with her. It was just, I'm so glad my mom experienced that. She put her feet in the Pacific Ocean. And she was like, ah, put her feet in the Pacific Ocean. I was like, yes, you did. Let me ask you this. Like, you know, it sounds like those couple of years, it was like a lot, right? So Mm -hmm. you met this person that you idolized letting you down. Mm -hmm. You weren't able to find um, a match. Mm -hmm. And then you were hit with this illness that was Mm life-threatening. So like, how did you muster up, you know, the strength, the will to still pursue this goal of, you know, finishing what you started? Oh, my faith, my faith, Mm -hmm. my faith, my Mm -hmm. faith in my family. I had seen my family always persist. My family was long suffering, endured through hell if necessary. Right. So that's what I was taught. That's what I was taught intentionally. And also that's what I was taught subliminally. Um, You endure through hell and long suffering if necessary to ultimately achieve your goal. And so, you know, I had to put my faith into action. You know, people talking about prayers, I had to pray with feet. And so finally uh, I got sick one more time. Remember my license had been taken from me. I wasn't able to drive. My cardiologist was like, I can't have you driving and you pass oh my god pass out while you're driving so you know i'm either like walking around la to wherever i could just walk in westwood or take a taxi i'm like where are you walking in la right right. only in westwood Westwood. i couldn't get really far because that is a car (laughs) culture Uh, public transportation is not like that and so you know i remember finally in april i was going to 
my doctor's appointment and I said, if this doctor tells me that he doesn't think it's a good idea for me to stay in in my internship, I'm going to formally withdraw. I said, I'm done fighting. I'm not going to fight. And I said, because I I had to learn to trust. If I was going to say I had faith, I had to trust that Yahweh was going to make a way for me to be okay. And that's when I I began to ask myself, because I wasn't sure if that meant I was going to have to leave medicine altogether. If you couldn't be a medical doctor, what can you do? And I started to say, okay, I'm good at doing this. I'm good at synthesizing. I'm good at diagnosis. Um, I'm good at connecting with people. I'm good at talking. I'm good at writing. Um, and I was like, Chris, you have core skills that you can use that are transferable. Life doesn't end because the dream you imagined when you were a child is over. And mm-hmm. so I really, exactly. I really had to have peace. And I finally had peace with that. And so I went to that doctor's appointment. It was in April. And Dr. Patel was like, Chris, I cannot get another call that you have passed out in another place in the hospital. He said, what happens if you hit your head and you injure yourself and you die? He said, because it's not the pots that's going to kill you. He was like, the POTS is a nuisance. The POTS is disabling you. But it's the fact that you're passing out without, like it was, I wouldn't have, uh, some people have what's described pre-syncable episodes. So like you might understand or get symptoms that you're about to pass out. That wasn't always the case for me. Literally, I could be standing and I could be talking to you and I would pass out cold. Blam. And I remember when that happened to me, I was talking, I was rounding. And the next thing I know, I heard a very loud boom. I had fallen straight back and hit the floor. And, <gasps> yes, just like that, from a standing position, straight back, and my head hit the floor. And he said to me, "That's what's going to kill you." Yeah, because I'm like, did, like that had to be like damaging your head too. Right. He's like, like it's that. He was like, "It's that." He was like, "You," because my heart was tiring. We're finally, we're, we're my um, ejection fraction started to drop. I remember when they multiple doctors came in the room and they were like, "Okay, we got to get this under control. Your EF is dropping, and your heart is tiring. We're not going to say that you have heart failure, but your heart." is tired. We have got Mm. to put your heart rate under control. Right. And so, you know, all of that in a culmination, I said, it's more important to be alive and to be healthy than to be a physician. And when I said that, when I said that I gave myself permission to walk in my greatness, I didn't yet know what the fullness of my greatness was going to be. I didn't know, Drina, that I will ultimately become a board-certified preventive medicine and public health physician. I didn't know that I ultimately would go to Johns Hopkins. I wasn't Uh meant to go to Johns Hopkins to be a neurosurgeon. I was meant to go to Johns Hopkins, which was the top, the pantheon of public health, to become a public health physician. And 17 years after the initial desire to go to Johns Hopkins. I first wanted to go from wow. school, didn't get it. Tried to go for neuro, uh, neurosurgery residency, didn't get it. And here I was, I was going to Johns Hopkins to be a preventive medicine and public health physician. And I was totally at one with my purpose. But you know what? You know, God will put these roadblocks in your desired path to ultimately put you on the path that he desires you to be on or the path that he outlined for you. So I know it was difficult kind of coming to grasp with like, you know, like, cause clearly you were struggling with it, right? Cause you were still getting up every day, trying right. to go into work. You were still applying to John Hopkins like mm-hmm. year over year. So I know it was difficult, right? It was very difficult. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, ultimately, I think what a lot of people, when they're in the midst of it, they don't see that until they're up on the other end. Like, you know what? This is actually where I was supposed to be. Right. I had to mature into that. And that's mm-hmm. why I tell people, don't be afraid to put certain dreams out to pasture as long as you don't put you out to pasture. Right. I had to find myself. I really, really believe Yahweh allowed the idea of becoming a neurosurgeon to be planted in my head because it taught me to fight. It taught me to fight like crazy. It taught me how to advocate. It taught me how to pursue excellence. It taught me how to pursue excellence, not just for myself, but how to like at at Duke. I knew that Duke wasn't right for me, but I wasn't just saying, okay, I'm going to leave this place and wash my hands of it. While I was a medical student, I was sitting on search committees. I was raising my voice. I was saying, this what's, this is what's difficult about this environment. This is why this environment isn't inclusive. This is why this environment isn't socially or culturally fluent. This is why this environment can't attract its black and brown um, medical students to stay and train here in the numbers that you would expect. So once again, I was learning to use my voice. Once again, through struggle, once again, I took that first uh, board test that I didn't score competitively on. I didn't fail it. I just didn't score competitively. That second time around, Drina, I knocked that thing out the park um, because I learned how to get what I knew and demonstrate that through a standardized test. I never really understood just how standardized tests perpetuate systemic and institutional racism, right? Because they really test test-taking strategies. They don't test a fund of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I have been taking standardized tests wrong my entire life. I was at the top of my, my class in, in, in high school having a 4.0 or near 4.0, beyond 4.0 GPA, but I, I didn't score as competitively on my SAT scores as other students. And I couldn't understand why until I learned People were having exposure to test taking prep. Um, they were having exposure to the actual exam. They were doing drills. They were learning, you know, how to choose the right answer, even when you don't know the right answer. And so when I learned how to solve that, because I knew I, I knew my stuff, I was also an AP scholar, but I didn't score well in the SAT. And then the same thing happened to me with that first, it was called the step one board. But when I learned and I totally flipped the script, I knocked that step two out of the park. I knocked my step three out of the park. And so every ounce, every mountain of struggle that I have lived or endured through, I've poured back into masses. I've poured back into my community. And I say, look, one, a standardized test does not judge, evaluate, or assess your worth. If people don't accept you because of how you perform on a test, that's their loss not yours. But we also have to put pressure on these systems to have more more equitable and inclusive ways of evaluating value because they are perpetuating racism otherwise. And so all of this has been like a rolling ball into who I have become now and the advocacy I do now. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just listening back to your story, you know, I'm learning that everything you've gone through has truly prepared you for where you are today. Yeah. It really has. Yeah. You're in a unique role, a role created for you. Um, the first of its kind, you're a Black woman executive at a, a Black woman senior executive at a hospital in Newark, yeah. where you're, you're kind of addressing a lot of these issues that we talked about today. Yeah. And so why was it important for you to talk about, I mean, why was it important for you to take on this role? 
Oh, very important. So uh, as a preventive medicine and public health physician um, and being the woman that I am, I study systems. I tell people I don't do direct patient care. I've been trained like every other physician, but I don't practice like every other physician. I look at systems and I look at what factors or conditions within systems, within environments, either produce healthy outcomes or produce unhealthy outcomes, right? Because systems by design don't always have positive downstream effects. Sometimes they have negative downstream effects, right? So I treat systems. And so in this type of role, and in the role that I had prior to this role, I was looking at groups of of people, or I was looking at populations. And so in a hospital setting, a public health physician in a hospital setting says, okay, I'm going to look at patient populations. And those patient populations can be defined by several demographic factors. It can be defined by race and or ethnicity. It can be defined by gender or gender identity. It can be defined by patients of a certain uh, you know, social economic status, which is in, in the healthcare world could be proxy for the type of insurance they have. It can be defined by geographical populations or geographic populations. So people of a city, people of a region, people of a state, and looking at the distribution of health outcomes in that po- population, um, the patterns in that population and saying, these are the factors that are contributing to this positive factor, uh, positive pattern. And these are the factors that are contributing to this negative pattern, right? So I'm that type of physician. And to be able to do that in a role that looks across operational units, all operational or business units in an organization, a health organization, is a powerful vehicle, a powerful role, a powerful office, because it says, what can we do to achieve more equitable outcomes for patients given this set of conditions, given these structural or social determinants? right? Given Mm -hmm. these clinical determinants. And that's why having someone in this role at a safety net institution in Newark, New Jersey is so important because health doesn't happen in a vacuum. Health is not just the product of your genetics, and it's not just the product of your genetics and access to health care. Health really is a multifactorial or multifaceted outcome that's very much rooted in where you live, where you work, where you play or recreate, where you pray or worship, right? And how much you earn. Those factors, those systems influence certain outcomes. And in my role, I have to have awareness of those factors. I have to be able to manipulate or to, um, you know, design levers or access points in the system to produce a different exposure and hence a healthier outcome. So that's why it was important for me to do this role, to do it for Mm -hmm. my community, to do it for my city, to do it for you know, my people to do it for public health, because we need more integration of public health and clinical medicine that needs to be more integrated and not so siloed. This is what makes the role fascinating. But this is also what makes the role challenging, because it's a first. So there isn't a playbook, you got to create it as you go. Right. And, you know, I really wanted to talk to you specifically, because, you know, I feel like in the current, you know, landscape that we're living in right now, voices like yours have become extremely important because 
we're still battling the COVID-19 pandemic. Currently, we're in the midst of vaccination rollouts. And there's a lot of skepticism about receiving the vaccination, specifically from Black and brown communities. You participated in the Moderna vaccination trial. And I'd, I'd love to kind of just talk about why you did that and why it's important for our communities to get educated on the COVID-19 vaccine. Definitely, definitely. So I want everyone to imagine what it was like almost a year ago. We're almost coming up on a one-year anniversary. We were in the midst of the epicenter of the pandemic back in March and April. We in New York and New Jersey. So imagine going to work every day. I'm not a frontline healthcare provider, but I'm on the front line in an organization, right? Um, so imagine going to work every day and there's this novel infectious agent that's ripping through the globe. And, you know, when it, when it is evidenced in the United States, it's out in the Pacific Northwest, out there in Washington, and the science is, is changing every day, right? Because there's just so much we didn't know. Like, how do you treat it? Um, how do you prevent right. it? What are the it was best, scary. Right, mm-hmm. Yes, what are the best protocols? So as a, as a part of a leadership team, we were pouring over that literature. We were pouring over those best practices as they were happening. Every day we were meeting about coronavirus. We were thinking about our hospital. We were thinking about the increasing number of patients that were getting admitted. What was the best way to take care of them? What was the best way to treat them? We had to reimagine treatment space, like what parts of the hospital were accessible to be converted into treatment space. We had to consider scenarios before they ever happened. What if we got in a position where critical equipment was scarce? How would we allocate things like ventilators based off of some, you know, allocation scheme? We never had to do that, but we definitely had to consider it, right? Nearly every bed in in the hospital where I work was filled with someone sick from coronavirus. And those people were black and brown folks. Yes, we live, um, meaning the hospital, we serve a black and brown majority city. But to see almost every bed of your institution, if not every bed at one point filled by someone sick from coronavirus, from very sick in the ICU to being on a ventilator, to someone on a general um, med surge floor, to thinking through converting space that's not normally used to treat patients, to thinking through what do you do when the the deaths are starting to pile up and running out of morgue space. I did that every day as a part of a leadership. Mm -hmm. So imagine doing that and then your father getting sick. You're you're still showing up to work every day. Like I Mm -hmm. physically went to work every day. There, There wasn't, in my role, I couldn't work from home, right? And many of us in healthcare, we could not work from home. And so my father had survived a harrowing uh, fall winter of 2019. We thought he was about, he was going to die. My father has a host of medical conditions. Um, he had emphysema. My father had end-stage lymphoma. My father had chronic HIV AIDS. And he was the bionic man. Every time it looked like my father was about to die, that he had no life left in him, he would live. And like even his physicians were like, Oh my goodness, <laughs> this man is like, you can't, you can never give up on him. And so it got really scary um, about November, December. It didn't look like my father was going to survive. And he did. I remember January 1st, my, fa- my father, January 1st, 2020, he got out of the hospital. He got admitted into a subacute rehab. And our understanding was, okay, this is going to help him get back to his baseline so that he can live out the home stretch of his life 
however he would like. And no one had given him, oh, you only have this amount of time to live. Just we knew, you know, with all of these conditions. So, you know, it was like, okay, go to rehab, get strong again, walk again, be able to feed yourself again, and then we'll bring you home. And then my dad got something called like a line infection because he was on chronic um, antibiotic. So prolonged antibiotic therapy. And the line that we used to give him his antibiotics at the subacute rehab got infected. And so I said, send him to the hospital. That was very, very early March, right before things were about to literally blow up. My father was getting exposed to coronavirus in the hospital. Oh, my God. Um, I remember right before- In the hospital? Yes. Mm -hmm. My father did not go into the hospital with coronavirus. He got exposed in the the hospital Um, because this was right when, you know, we were learning what were the the best infection prevention protocols, you know, care teams were being overwhelmed. The, The ratio of nurses to patients was exploding, was increasing. And I remember having conversations with people on my dad's team and they were like, he has got to get out of here because it's bad. It's bad. It's like every day, another person is infected. And so when I would go and visit him right before visitation was restricted, I stopped going all the way into my father's room. I would stand in the doorway and I would visit with him from the doorway because I did, we did, there was so much we didn't know. And I was like, I don't want to bring him anything from the hospital where I'm working. Um, And so that's how our last couple of visits were, except for one day he went to stand up and he didn't have his balance and I caught him and put him back in the chair. So I think that was the last time I, I touched my dad. Within that next week, visitor restrictions went into effect. And my father said to us, and I remember this, it's like, it was hauntingly true. He said, if I can't see my family, I'm not going to live. He wasn't diagnosed with coronavirus at this point. Oh my God. We were just waiting for placement, but getting placement back into subacute rehab was really difficult because coronavirus was exploding. Um, and he said, if I'm not going to be able to see my family, I'm not going to live. I was like, oh, come on, daddy, don't say that. You fight through everything. Just, just fight long enough so we can get you back to rehab and then get you home. And he was just, he was resigned. I remember telling my brother, I said, Bishop, you got to talk to him because my brother's like his best friend. <laughs> they were like bosom buddies. Um, and so I was like, you got to talk to him. You got to encourage him. He's like, I live for my family. He's like, that's what I'm living for. And so, you know, we tried all the virtual means. And then I got a call one day at work that he was very unstable. He was not able to breathe. His vitals were dropping, um, that they were calling, you know, they weren't calling a code, but they were calling what was right next to a code because my father was um, a, a DNR. I mean, he so after he had been intubated and he got really sick, he's like, do not ever do that to me again. And I said, okay. I won't do that to you ever again. Oh, wow. But he, was, he had made up his mind. He was like, you have no idea what that feels like being intubated. He was like, yes, I know you all were telling me I couldn't breathe. That was the only way to save my life. But don't ever do that to me again. If it's my end, it's my end. Um, and you respect a person who's been through all of that. They tell you how they want to live out their end of their life. And I said, you got it. I will never let that happen to you again. And so remember the doctor saying, it's bad here. Your dad is really sick. And I was like, what are you telling me? And he was like, you got to get him out of here. I was like, take him where? And literally, I want people to hear these stories. These are this is these were the stories I was having because we were in war. That's what it felt like. We were in war. I was in war at my own hospital, and my father was in a war at another hospital because everyone was overwhelmed. He's like, you got to get him out of here. I was like, where? And take him where? Do do what? But it was a sense of desperation. Like he is not going to survive it here. And my father had three of those episodes. And after the third one, I said, we got to test him. And the doctor was like, we got to test him. I think he has coronavirus. And he did. And after that positive test, my dad, my dad was probably dead in the next 10 days. 
Oh my God. Oh. And at the time that my father was being tested for coronavirus, I got sick with a flu-like illness and I didn't know what I had. And I had to, that was the one time that the one week where I could not work physically in the hospital, I had to work from home. And it turns out I didn't have coronavirus or at least I didn't test positive for it. I felt horrible, definitely felt like I had something. And I remember my dad saying to me, please tell me you don't have this too. Please tell me you don't have this too. Um, and I said, daddy, I don't have it. He was like, oh, I feel better. <laughs> um, but he knew he had it. And he held on and he fought as long as he could. Um, having all of those medical conditions, especially emphysema and COPD and already at baseline, not having good lungs, he, his body just couldn't, couldn't fight it. And the Sunday before he died, I remember speaking to the nurse and she said in such a detached way. And I don't say that to blame her, but I say that for people to understand what I mean that we were in a war. She said it like a person in a fog of war. I called to check on my dad because I read on social media that another peer, um, Dr. Magdala Sherry, her dad had died in a hospital from coronavirus and he was found dead on a bathroom floor. He was trying to go to the bathroom. and it didn't Oh, my God. And he found, was found dead on the floor. He wrote about it. And I called the hospital and I said, what's going on with my dad? Because he had been scheduled to get a blood transfusion that day because he wasn't eating. He was slowly, slowly slipping away. Um, and I remember the nurse said, oh, he's not doing good. And she started telling me his vitals. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. These vitals are new. Like, what's going on? I said, what are you telling me? Are you telling me my father is dying? She was like, yes, he's going to die. I don't know when, but he's going to die. Just like that. She said it like that? Just like that. Oh. And my heart dropped. I was like, Phew. This is about to happen. So I had to prepare my family. Oh my God. I knew what she was saying. Oh. I had to prepare my family. And I remember calling. I was like, we're going to lose him. And we're like, wait, what? I was like, yes. And so they allowed my brother to go up Sunday night because, you know, my brother being also a bishop and to pray with him, but I couldn't go up. And by the next day, I went into the hospital knowing full well, I didn't know how many moments or hours my dad had. And I said, I'm going to try again. Because I had called that night and said, please, do I can come up. And they're like, no, we're sorry. You're, we're not supposed to allow people upstairs. I said, I get it. I'm not going to pressure you. We have the same issue at my hospital. Um, and so I went into work. I had alerted my CEO. I was like, look, my dad's going to likely die. I don't know when, but over this 24 period, I spoke with the doctor again very late last night. They weren't, they weren't sure if he would make it through the night. He did, but I came into work because we were getting, we were getting reservists, army reservists to help us with the workload at our hospital because we were overwhelmed. Um, and I went to make sure my team was taken care of, that my team got the support and the resources that were being um, identified and assigned. And I remember speaking to the nurse and I said, look, please ask permission again if I can come. And she was like, come. And I literally raced the four miles from my hospital to where my dad was. And by the time I got to the parking lot, I hit my ignition. They called me. He had just passed. Just like that. Wow. Oh, so my God. That, that, all of that, Trina, that's why I had to do something. I had, mm. I had to be a part of the solution. In the, in the ensuing weeks, my sister, who's a breast cancer survivor, she would get exposed at her job and she would test positive. And so I was like, I'm taking blows left and right. Yeah. My family, my community, my hospital, I'm taking blows left and right. I... I have been a fighter all my life. And I said, yeah. they have to fight the best way I know how. I'm enrolling in this in this coronavirus vaccine trial. 
And I said, if we don't enroll with enough diversity and inclusivity, we won't be able to say if it's effective in all populations. And historically, that is one of the inequities that we have to work on. Um, black and brown persons do not participate in clinical research at the levels that are, are, that are equivalent to their representation of the population. And that's for a host of reasons. Um, that's because of systemic racism and the historical injustice and ongoing present day disparities that blacks are confronted with in, in the healthcare and academic medical complex. That's because of information barriers, not knowing about these studies, um, the studies not being publicized or messaged in culturally competent and fluent ways, in health literate ways because of convenience barriers, studies not um, having hours of operation that are accessible for people who can't afford to miss work or whether because of time or transportation or because of the lost earnings or, or, or wages. So for those host of reasons, Blacks historically have not participated in clinical research. And I had made up in my mind, I had the ability to do this. So I was going to do it for others who could not. So I enrolled. And and so you got the two shots, right? Mm -hmm. So from Moderna, I want to just talk quickly about like, did you have any symptoms Mm -hmm. specifically because Moderna is one of the, I guess, brands of the vaccination that are currently being rolled out across the country. And, you know, if you're, if anyone listening is like me, they're like, I don't know which one to take. I don't like, I'm scared about, because, you know, I'm scared about the side effects. Right. Did you, did you experience any side effects with the Moderna? Sure. So I got my first injection on August 31st and I got my second injection on October 2nd. Now I want everybody to understand when I got my injections, I did not know if I had received the actual vaccine or if I had received the placebo. The study is what you call double blinded, meaning. And what's, and what's the difference? And so the difference placebo is just saline. It's not the vaccine versus the real thing, right? So half half of the people receive the real thing and half of the people just receive placebo. They just receive saline. Yeah, that's how that's how research is done. That's how it's done. And the in the study lead, the researcher, the principal investigator, she didn't know either. So so that way that couldn't influence their follow-up, right? So the uh, I enrolled in this study, I did my homework. I wanted to make sure it's being done in an ethically sound way. I wanted to make sure it was voluntary. I wanted to make sure I could withdraw at any point for no no penalty to myself. And I did all of these things. I didn't expect any of those things not to be done, but I did it as a way to to demonstrate and to reassure others that research can be done in a scientifically sound and ethical way. It can, right? And so I did every step and every check and balance that I was supposed to do. So I got that first injection. I can tell you headache. I experienced headaches. I experienced headaches for several days. Um, And in addition to getting headaches, I got soreness and pain at the injection site. The the pain in my arm was never to the point where I couldn't raise my arm or never to the point that I couldn't drive my car or that I couldn't go into work. I did get a slight bump in my temperature, but never to the point that it was a fever. The headaches mm-hmm. were the most obvious sign or symptom that I had. And I had an app on my phone, which I still do. At that point, daily, I would get asked questions like, do you have this? Do you have fever? Do you have chills? Do you have muscle aches? Do you have nausea? Do you have a headache? Do you have joint pain? 
right? And I would have to answer those questions every day. And then I would get phone calls periodically throughout the week after injection to ask me the same things. So people were constantly following up with me. And that was true whether or not you got vaccine or placebo because mm-hmm. masking you didn't know. And you, yeah. And so, but my second shot was different. My second shot, I got very, very tired. Like uh, my, my mom used to have an expression when she would get really tired. She would say, it felt like a truck ran over me. Like my mom had all mm-hmm. crazy um, euphemisms and expressions. And I, and I knew what she meant that I got my injection early in the day on the 2nd of October. By the end of the day, I was struggling to get out of my car, struggling to lift mm. my leg. I also had the headaches. I also had the pain in my arm. And this time my temperature elevated a little bit more than it did previously. It still wasn't a fever. So it wasn't 100.4, but it was close to 100. So I I was suspicious that I may Mm. have had received it, but I didn't know. I didn't learn whether or not I had the vaccine or placebo until early January. And the way that study participants were able to to, to know whether or not they received the vaccine or not, especially those of us who were healthcare workers. Because at that point, both Pfizer and Moderna had been approved through emergency use authorization. So it would have been unethical for a healthcare worker to continue to put themselves at risk um, in a healthcare setting when they had a tool, a vaccine available to them to prevent infection. So before I would go through with my appointment, so I was calling to make an appointment. I was like, I need to have an appointment to get vaccinated. And the study was like, we will unblind you. We will get special permission to unblind you. And I remember when the study lead called me and she said, what do you think? Which one do you think you were, which arm do you think you were in? And I got really quiet. And I said, I think I got the vaccine. And she was like, you did. And I, I was screamed. I was like, yes. I was like, daddy, I got the vaccine. I've become the data. I've become the data. It felt like I did it for him. I did it for my sister. I did it for everyone in my community. I did it for all of those patients that we lost. We lost staff persons. I did it. I I did it because I could. I did it because we won't be able to beat back this pandemic without tools. Mm -hmm. I did it because we need more diverse and inclusive representation in clinical research. Otherwise, institutional and systemic racism will continue to rage. And for all of us, I was happy. Were you scared? You know, I was never scared, but I was informed and I was aware. Right. So mind you, I've jumped out of a plane before. So I could take mm-hmm. a certain level of risk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing that. Person, right. I'm that type of person. Um, so I could take a certain level of risk. I'm a bit of an adventurous. And so, you know, I wasn't scared, but I was fully aware that there were things, there were unknowns. Right. I knew mm-hmm. that there were unknowns, but I was like, Yahweh, I'm telling you. I remember I telling my family, I'm telling you. The, 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 what was known to date was that there had been no serious medical events. So that was very reassuring. So like in the early phase studies, there were no serious medical events. And all trial participants were told that before they entered, because any known data had to be made available to you so you can make an informed choice or decision. And so I wasn't scared, but I was aware of the risk that I was taking. I'm just so thankful and grateful that I had the opportunity. I was one of the 15,000 and the 30,000 study of Moderna who got the vaccine that enabled the nation to be at this point to roll it out. Mm. I'm not going to lie, Dr. Chris. I mean, you're, you're the reason why I'm even open to getting the vaccination. 
you know, I mean, outside of this was even before I I got sick with COVID, mm-hmm. but just because like, you know, the internet, um, yeah. you know, runs the stories around people getting the vaccine and getting sick or having these weird reactions to it, possibly dying from the vaccination. What do you say to people that are kind of on the fence, specifically black and brown folks? Mm-hmm. Because we're always leery of like black people don't trust nobody, but it's especially when it comes to like medical trials and vaccinations, we're really apprehensive around participating. And so you've gone through it and you're fine. What do you say to people in the community who are, you know, nervous about getting the vaccine? I say, I get it. I say, and which one do you say which one to get? No, because there is, they're technically the same. There, there is no difference between the first two vaccines that have been uh, approved through emergency use authorization. And with the next vaccine that's coming is a different technology, but it still has very significant efficacy or effectiveness at preventing severe disease. So meaning if you get either Moderna or Pfizer, and the research, what is research has shown to date about Johnson and Johnson, we're waiting for the FDA to conclude its review of the data, that if you take the vaccines, it will prevent you from getting sick where you need to be hospitalized. It will prevent you from getting sick where you could potentially be on a ventilator. It will prevent you from getting sick where you could lose your life. And research is showing that not only will it prevent sickness or symptoms, that it now looks like you know, people are doubling back and, and, and looking through the data specifically for this question and answer. It will also prevent transmission of the virus. So mm. when I'm vaccinated, does it decrease the likelihood that I could get infected? Meaning I'm, I carry the virus, but I don't have symptoms. And it looks so far, we can't say conclusively yet, but the data is very suggestive. It looks like it decreases transmission. So I get that black people have fears and concerns. I get it. I don't think my family would have been so eager to get vaccinated if we had not lost our dad, if they had not had the example of me, if they had, if they did not see my sister be what we call a, a long hauler, if we hadn't lost two more cousins, if we didn't see the devastation in the black and brown community because of the history, because of not just the history, but what it means to be black in America, right? I tell people racism kills and racism has stained every system and sector in this nation. And it has left black folks with trauma. Mm-hmm. No other way to explain it, right? So it is a learned response. It's actually a quite rational response. You're going to have to demonstrate that you're trustworthy before I trust you. And I, yep. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. And so what I think the, the, the imperative is for systems, right? And the imperative for folks like myself is to explain the options, to explain the risk versus the benefit. We just had uh, research come out and say, one third of people who get coronavirus and only have mild or moderate com- coronavirus infection and don't have to go to the hospital. One third of those people, Drina, have lingering symptoms. Oh God! Even after recovering. One third. Oh God! Yes, and there's no way Democrats to don't tell me that. No, but I have to because there's no way of predicting who that one third is. That's my sister's experience of it. Okay. That's her experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's mine too. Yes. I want to make sure black people understand that yeah. not only are, are you at a higher risk of exposure because of your housing conditions, 
black people, especially in certain social economic statuses. And and then also because we we live in multi-generational dwellings, you know, our our older parents or, you know, some relative lives with us. We're at more exposure at home because we can't isolate or quarantine properly. We're more Mm -hmm. exposure in the types of jobs that we work because we're frontline or essential workers, whether we're that postal worker like my cousin or a retail chain worker like my sister or a, a, a frontline hospital worker. We're, we're, we're more at risk from exposure. We're more at risk for hospitalization. This is just what the data shows. We're more at risk for hospitalization. Data throughout the pandemic has fluctuated. We've been more at risk for hospitalization across the nation, sometimes as high as three to five times higher than white folks. Now that we are more at risk for hospitalization, black and brown persons didn't have equal access to testing, right? So you couldn't test and know that you had it so that you could potentially isolate, but then you, then maybe isolation wasn't a possibility for you. Uh, uh, taking time off and working remotely, perhaps that wasn't a possibility exactly. for you because of the type of job you work. You don't have that protection mm-hmm. on your job. So we are more at risk. We carry more risk. And that risk, those risks, I should say, those cumulative, those risks that add up are more risky, Drina, than the risk of a side effect from the vaccine, which is normal and routine. I want everybody to understand that. Everything that I experience is normal and routine. And it's definitely more risk than the risk of you having an adverse reaction. So an adverse reaction is having an allergic reaction. So whether that allergic reaction is hives, um, wheezing, redness or rash, or the the most severe type anaphylaxis where you can't breathe and it feels like your throat is, is closing up, that is yep. so rare. That is so, so rare. But the other risks that I described to you are way more frequent. So Mm -hmm. I need my community to know that not getting vaccinated puts you at an unnecessary risk. Do you think it's going to be easier to actually sign up to get the vaccine? I know they were doing them in uh, phases, but do you think ultimately, just like how we go and get our flu shot every year, it'll be as simple as that? It needs to be. It's not going to be there yet. We're cre- we're we mean those in public health, um, those who focus on equity. We're we're raising those considerations, right? So you have public health leaders, and I'm of the same op- opinion. I think the the vaccines should be not restricted by age and conditions, especially in Black and Brown communities, because of the risk I've just explained to you. Yep, we've had Black and Brown folks getting coronavirus and having more severe episodes of coronavirus at younger ages than white people. So if we have a age cutoff, then those persons who were bearing a disproportionate risk don't have access to the tool that could save their life. And so we have to do, we meaning collectively in public health, what you're starting to see happen. We have to do think through access in a more realistic way, meaning how can we make the vaccines available in local pharmacies? That's why the different options are necessary, right? Because they have different storage requirements, right? Mm -hmm. Pfizer has to be kept ultra cold. Moderna has to be kept cold, but not as cold as Pfizer. There are, you know, integrity issues around, is it stable when it's being commuted? Can it be uh, transported through a mobile van, right? And so that's why we need other options like the J&J. We need something that's a one-shot we need something that has a, a longer refrigerator shelf life. Um, we need to put those vaccines in pharmacies, community health centers, uh, federally qualified health centers. We need to put those vaccines in mobile units and vans. 
hands. We need to put those vaccines in churches and faith-based settings in the mosque and the temple. We need to have a block-by-block strategy to say, okay, in this neighborhood, in this zip code, this these are the demographic factors and these demographic factors place people at this level of risk. How do we mitigate that risk? Giving them access. These are the barriers to access. These are the language and the literacy barriers to access. These are the transportation barriers to access. These are the information barriers to access. And that's what you see mm-hmm. a lot of black folks have. You have information needs. Yep. You're in this wait and see category because we have to make sure we speak in socially and culturally fluent terms. We amplify the voices of folks who look like those who are concerned, right? And mm-hmm. we, once a person in our family, like a cousin called me, He's going to be 70 in a couple of months. And he's like, I just want to tell you, my wife and I got the vaccine. Um, they were offering it. And I think they were offering it at a pharmacy at Walmart or something of that nature. Um, and said, you know, they wanted to know if we wanted it. And we say, yes, we want it. And I want healthcare to listen. Yes, Black people have concerns. But don't use that as an excuse not to make sure that the access barriers are dismantled and disrupted. Because when we meet those concerns, Black folks are willing to get vaccinated. Yep, exactly. Dr. Chris, I can't wait for a book from you, a new book. I know you're working on something. Hopefully, I'm I'm putting it into the atmosphere. Yeah, put it out there. Hold me accountable. I, I will. I will. You've had a very interesting journey and I'm excited to see what's next for you. What's one piece of advice you would share with someone listening who may just be hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock along their journey, similar to like, you know, what you've experienced? What would you share? Failure is not denial. Come on. Failure is an opportunity to reinvent yourself. Failure is an opportunity to cultivate. Failure is an opportunity for iron to sharpen iron. And by failure, we become more creative. We become more innovative. Um, So failure is not denial. And at all costs and against all odds, believe in yourself. Dr. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Where can people follow you on social media? Sure. On Twitter. At Dr. Chris MD, so that's D R C H R I S M D on Instagram at the Good Doctor MD, so that's the T H E Good spelled out, Doctor spelled out, D O C T O R M D. Um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I have a Life Clinic One Hundred and One page, um, and I started a YouTube channel, a Life Clinic One Hundred and One YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Chris, the People's Physician. Folks, stay tuned. You'll see more from Dr. Chris. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you.